if we softened the conversation and softened the style with which we spoke to people, we observed quite remarkable change. Not like this is a magic bullet or something very mysterious, but compared to what we'd been through, life felt a lot easier. And in essence, motivational interviewing is this. Instead of trying to adopt a top-down position and persuade, encourage, inform, advise, convince someone to change, you come alongside them and help them work this out for themselves. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is a replay of a monthly webinar I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health with Dr. Steven Rolnick, who's a pioneer in the field of motivational interviewing and has spent much of his career researching and developing effective methods for helping people resolve difficult behavior change. I first read his book, Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare, when I was in medical school, and this was a technique I learned to use heavily during my medical training. So I was very excited to be able to share a conversation with Dr. Rolnick on the webinar, and I hope you enjoy as well. You can join us live for next month's webinar on April 22nd at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific time with Dr. Alessio Visano on gluten and the microbiome. Keep an eye out in the CrossFit email of the day and on CrossFit.com for registration details. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get to the episode. Welcome everybody to our February CrossFit Health webinar. I am very excited to be here today with Dr. Steve Rolnick, and he's going to be talking about motivational interviewing for behavior change. So I'm going to start with a brief bio and intro on Steve, and then I'll ask him some questions to sort of lay the groundwork on what motivational interviewing is and how to use it. And then we'll take questions from you all. So feel free throughout the webinar to post your questions in the Q&A box at any time as they come up. And during the second half of the webinar, I'll be posing those to Steve. So a little bit of background. Dr. Steve Rolnick is a psychologist. He's an author and a trainer in healthcare, sport, and other fields. He's an honorary distinguished professor in the School of Medicine in Cardiff University, Wales. And as a clinical psychologist, Steve spent many years in NHS mental health care and doing research on effective communication. He worked as a trainer in diverse cultures and settings worldwide in support of programs for pregnant teens and children with HIV and AIDS. He's a co-founder of Motivational Interviewing. He has written several books on motivation, motivational interviewing, and behavior change, including Motivational Interviewing, Helping People Change, Health Behavior Change, A Guide for Practitioners, Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare, and Motivational Interviewing in Schools, and most recently, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. So he currently works in sport training coaches and communication and mentoring individual coaches and players in cricket, football, and other sports, including baseball, American football, and surf therapy, which I've never heard of and sounds so interesting in South Africa. So thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. Uh, it's on, honestly a pleasure. I'm speaking to you from a rather wet Wales, hence the, <laughs> hence the reference to cricket, which I'm sure no one really uh, is familiar with. But no, thank you very much for having me, Julie. 
It is an honor. And I have to say my intro to your work was your book, Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare. And um, I was first introduced to that book during medical school. I think when I was in medical school, we were on the, the beginning of the wave where motivational interviewing became a staple for all medical students and dove in even deeper during residency. And I think I noticed that the um, mentors that I had, the doctors who really used motivational interviewing were the ones that seemed to have the best connections with their patients that seemed to be the most effective um, and the ones that I really gravitated to. So it's been something that um, has been really impactful for me personally. And I know goes beyond healthcare into all types of behavior change as you've, um, as you've written about. So I'm excited to, to have you here. Yeah, well, it'll be, it'll be fun to understand what it is you most like, most want to know and how it links to the world of CrossFit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So first, would you mind just telling us a bit about your background and then how motivational interviewing came about? Wow. Let me try 40, 40 plus years in a minute. Here goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, grew up in, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, and then came over to the United Kingdom. I've lived in Australia. And um, in, in the journeys I've taken personally and professionally, this issue kept on cropping up, which was what's the best way to help people change? And it started in the addictions field for me. I was a psychologist in the addictions field. And I saw this little academic paper called Motivational Interviewing, 1983 it was. And by complete coincidence, a few years later, I found myself in Sydney, Australia, having absorbed this method and read about it, I was very struck by it, to meet the guy who wrote it by complete accident. He was in the room next door to me. So that started 30, 40 years of collaboration between myself and the real founder, who was William R. Miller, who's based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so we started thinking this was a fairly specialist thing to do with helping people overcome addictions. Uh, and then it grew and spread in the way that you've, you've pinpointed. And I think the essence of it, of our experience, was that the, the harder we tried to persuade these patients in that context to change, the more abrasive and, and dysfunctional the conversation seemed to become. And what struck both of us when we met was that if we softened the conversation and softened the style with which we spoke to people, uh, we observed quite remarkable change. Not like this is a magic bullet or something very mysterious, but compared to what we'd been through, uh, life felt a lot easier. And um, in essence, motivational interviewing is this. Uh, instead of trying to adopt a top-down position and persuade, encourage, inform, advise, convince someone to change, you come alongside them and help them work this out for themselves. Sounds a bit woolly, that, but you, you, ask, you ask them why and how they might change rather than tell them why and how they might change. How's that? That's quite nice because... It addresses both the why they might change and also how, what practical steps they can take. So that's me stating it quite simply. If you'd asked me the question 10 years ago, you would have, would have got a much more complicated answer. Um, but I think with the benefits of all the experience I've had, I now, I now see it as that simple. 
And so that explains why it's been an easy journey for me to move from healthcare to the world of school teachers, uh, to the world of sports coaches, which is where I now live. And then with a little bit of luck and perseverance into the world of parenting. Um, yeah. so maybe we'll touch on that. I got four kids myself. Um, I'm not a flawless human being or parent, I can tell you, but I have noticed stuff going on that makes a difference. So um, there you go. That's me. Wow. That's amazing. I would love to get into parenting in a little bit. Um, you mentioned that this, it's a simple approach, but I know it's something that's not easy and maybe not something that we are as humans, pro, an approach that we're programmed to take, or most of them as are programmed to take. Um, so could you illustrate for us maybe some of the principles of motivational interviewing or some of the, the ways that you can start to approach this? That's a great question. It's a great question. Why don't we get practical, hey, Julie? Let's think about, what about this? I got, I got a friend, let's call her Lucy. It's not a real name, okay? And Lucy's like the heart of an incredible family. She works really hard. Um, she's wanting to get fitter, but her life is tough and busy, okay? And she's got the, she says she's got too much going on, but she's a real trier. Um, so she wants to get fitter, but she loves her comfort food. Okay. okay. So if you take somebody like that, like Lucy, the question is, and you're in conversation with her, whether it's within the CrossFit organization or in everyday life, here's an interesting question. If you're talking about it with Lucy, how might you go about that conversation that inspires and liberates her? Um, I've said that I think it's probably best for her to answer why and how she might want to change rather than you. That doesn't mean I don't have expert information to share with Lucy, but Lucy drives the bus, so to speak, and I sit alongside her. And when she wants expert guidance about where to take the bus or what's going on, I offer her that information. I don't dump it on her. Okay. So it's got that feeling of sitting alongside someone rather than above them in which you are championing their wisdom and their ability to make good decisions about their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, 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 it, it is a profound privilege to be in that space with someone. And, you know, if I work, if I talk about the world, which you and I know from clinical practice, I'm, I'm right now working with uh, a, a young mother with a serious drinking problem. And it is, is honestly a privilege to sit alongside her and get out of her way while she develops the courage, the incredible courage that's needed to break free of alcohol and to be the good mother that she wants to be. But uh, that is how, so it's as motivational interviewing is as much about how you are with someone mm -hmm. as about what you, what, you, what you say to them, but it's both. And you beautifully describe this as simple and it reminds me of, to use a soccer analogy, one of the most famous soccer coaches was Johan Kreef, Barcelona Football Club. And he said this about soccer. Playing soccer is a simple game. Playing simple soccer is one of the hardest things to do. Mm. <laughs> you know, so you're absolutely right, Julie. It is simple. Um, 
but it takes thoughtfulness and skill. Yeah. Let's build. I love your example of Lucy. Let's build on that. So let's say, you know, I'm Lucy's friend and I know she wants to get fitter and I'm really into CrossFit and I know how much it's worked for me. I've seen it work for my friends and my family. And I just know if she would get into a CrossFit gym and start eating the way that CrossFit prescribes, she would be a lot fitter and happier and healthier. Um, and maybe my initial reaction is to say, Lucy, you've got to join this CrossFit gym. You'll love it. Just come with me. But you're telling me maybe that's not the right approach. Well, what I would like you to be is your authentic you. So I don't want you to be someone who's not Julie. And I don't want you to behave like someone who's not Julie. So that's absolutely the starting point. You want to be Julie and be genuine and authentic. So, and I don't want to suggest that this is the only way for you to be authentic. There might be other ways, but you do want to be authentic. But I could tell you, we could have some fun if I if I could advise you what not to do. Let's do it's it. Like, it's <laughs> like the traps. It's like the traps you could fall into knowing that you, Julie, your heart is in the right place. So one falls into these traps with a good heart, but it doesn't work out. And it probably explains why there is such a, a, a enthusiasm for motivational interviewing in so many fields. It probably explains that people recognize these traps. Um, and perhaps one other reason is because I think there's probably, it's hard to think of any illness that uh is not either caused by or or ameliorated by change in lifestyle. So that's another reason why there's such an interest. And, in, uh, you know, there's over 1,800 randomized controlled trials of this. So there you go. That's the science. But we're wondering about... <laughs> Which is a lot, just to back up. I mean, to have 1,800 RCTs on one intervention is a lot. And there are, you know, we so we know that it's effective. I think so. It is. Yeah, I think so. There's a certain kernel of truth that runs through it. I don't think not every study is positive, but I think what I'm going to describe now on this webinar, I'm trying all the time to get to the, the essence of this. And, and I think that essence holds out in the research that's been done. But let's go back to Lucy. You know what I wouldn't want you to do with Lucy is fall into, and I'll mention five traps. See what you think. The expert information dump trap. Okay, if only you could get it into Lucy's head, what she should do, then all's going to be well. Mm -hmm. And I think you're not going to have a happy conversation. Okay, linked to that would be a second trap, which is the persuasion trap. So you try as hard as you can to persuade Lucy to come to CrossFit. I think as you tell her all the reasons why she should come to CrossFit, a switch goes in her brain that says, yes, but. And she'll start either feeling or being bold enough to tell you why it won't work. Let's this. pause there for a second. I want to dig into those. For the first one, the expert opinion. So that would be things like, let me send you all of the articles about CrossFit and why it's so good for you. Yeah. And then the persuasion would be just trying to say, come on, please come with me. I know you'll love it. And just continuing to, to ask her in that way. Yeah, exactly. You're brilliant at reflective listening. <laughs> you are, I can tell you so. Yeah, that's fantastic. I read so that you, chapter. <laughs> I know you're going to be good with Lucy, but let me just carry on and mention a couple of other traps. Like here's the next one is related. They're all related, but 
I, I mentioned the phrases because I think they might ring true with people. This one is a phrase I came up with recently called the deficit detective trap. Mm. That's widespread in education and sport and healthcare and, and medicine, as you and I know, which is I know what's best and I look for faults and deficits in you and I rectify them. Mm. Okay. And I then use what I've termed the writing reflex. I see things wrong with you. And with my heart in the right place, I set about rectifying what's wrong with you. It's like they lenses that you're wearing and everything is colored by your ability to recognize and correct deficits, which in your everyday practice as a physician is important. But when it comes to someone else changing their lifestyle, it's not, I would advise you to keep off that with Lucy. Okay. They probably could feel like they're being judged or like you're trying to, there's something wrong with them that you're trying to fix. Yeah. And then we've got to ask ourselves a question. Do people change when they're made to feel that way? And we can all ask ourselves that question. And then linked to that is what you could call a labeling and blaming trap. Now, this is probably not, not that widespread in CrossFit, but you and I know that in mental health and in healthcare, this is quite widespread. You label them as having this or that problem and you prescribe a remedy and people don't like it, okay? And then finally, I'd, I'd mention this as a, as a real trap for Lucy, right? definitely, and I would want you not to fall into it, which is what I've called the premature focus trap. Okay. And look, this is about Lucy's well-being in the first instance. Okay. So if you're going to chat to Lucy, surely talk to her about her well-being. Don't fall into the premature focus trap and say to Lucy, I know the solution for you. Almost like I know a solution before I know what the problem is. Do you see what I mean? So mm -hmm. if you if you fall into this trap, you'll jump to practical solutions before you've helped Lucy clarify her why and her how, if you see what I mean. Got it. Don't, I don't know if that's helpful. That's extremely helpful. And I can see, I can think of examples of when I've fallen into all of those traps and why, you know, why, how you can easily do that with the right intentions. Um, so then if we are trying to avoid those traps, what are some of the things that we... Should try to do. <laughs> I knew we were going there, right? Like, <laughs> how about this? You know, people change for their own good reasons. Okay. It's going to be lasting change. It's, it's because it's something they want. Okay. Self-determination theory is actually quite helpful here. Um, so you, your viewers might want to just dive into self-determination theory. I found it incredibly useful, which is that that people are more likely to change if they feel they're in a it's in a within a relationship. So you're chatting to Lucy and you're connecting with her, where they have choice. Okay, that makes seems to make a big difference, and they can feel, literally feel competent in talking with you, and so you will be focusing on on offering them choice, and ideas for improving their own sense of their competence. So that, that's just a bit of background theory, which I think is useful. I would then want to point you in this direction, which is 
how about this? Um, there are a number of communication styles that we use in everyday life and in everyday practice. And how about these three? And I'm going to suggest you adopt the middle one. There's directing, instructing, telling, convincing on the one side. Right on the other side, there's following, listening, being there with someone. And between these two is what I've called a guiding style, okay? which in many ways takes the best of both either side, in which you become a good guide with Lucy. In other words, you've got loads of expert knowledge. You can point her in the right direction. But number one is your focus on what she feels will be best for her and what she feels most able to achieve and help her clarify the why. So you would be talking to Lucy as a person first, patient or client or customer second, who likes choice and who likes to be heard. And a guiding style is wonderful for doing this, and it's naturally used by good teachers, parents, and sports coaches. So I'm now, I've now described the sort of foundation style that I would like you to use with Lucy. And there are wonderful examples of this in education and sport. And that Johan Kreif I mentioned is a beautiful example. Steve Kerr, I don't know him too well, but he's well known as a sports coach in the US, is a brilliant example of this. Okay, So he does it naturally. He doesn't know anything about motivational interviewing. But what then might motivational interviewing be in addition to you using a guiding style? And I'm happy to try and articulate that. Um, but have I been clear or, or are you confused? Yes, I think that makes sense. I think it would be helpful to give some examples. So let's say we're talking to Lucy. Um, how might What might a guiding style of conversation look like? And indeed, motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. I would say you approach Lucy. We distinguish between spirit and technique. So spirit is the way you are and technique is the conversation skills you use. So you would approach Lucy in a spirit of curiosity, acceptance, and compassion. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's actually a state of mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it requires, if you like, sitting on your hands. You know those traps I mentioned? You kind of sit on your hands and don't get involved with you falling into those traps, if you see what I mean. Okay. So it's, it's got a motivational interviewing has got a quality of restraint about it, as does it, good guiding, okay? But in terms of the tasks you would carry out with Lucy, I would say, well, we say we have described four of these. The first is to engage, okay? Your mind is free of clutter when you engage. Listening is the core skill that helps with engaging, and you can get better and better at it. I I had to get dragged kicking and screaming from a directing style. For me, <laughs> right? My temperament is right, fix the problem, right? So I had to really learn the, these skills and you can get better and better at listening. But when you engage with Lucy, try not to ask too many questions, okay? And, and when you ask a good open question with Lucy, like, Lucy, how do you want to feel healthier and better about things and more balanced? How's that? It's not a bad mm -hmm. open question, right? My suggestion would be that you listen. And that means you, you do what you, Julia, have been doing with me, which is 
you summarize what Lucy says in little short summaries, which we call reflections, as you're going along. And that gives Lucy a sense of I'm being heard, this person understands me, and I am free and safe in this conversation enough to say what I really think. Mm. That's the magic of empathic listening. Now, that's using a following style, but I would say fairly soon you might want to say to Lucy, to, you might want to do a, use a second task with her, which is to focus. So you've got engage, focus, clarify with her what kind of change makes the most sense to her. And it might not be attending CrossFit. That might be way down the line in the conversation. She might Mm -hmm. say, look, the number one for me is I just want to feel more balanced and I don't want to deal with my diet at the moment, but I would like to get fitter. And then I think my diet will actually improve. Brilliant. Now, that's how you've established a focus. And notice when you've done that, that the language that she used is what we call change talk. Mm -hmm. Think about what I just said. I want this, I don't want that, but I would like to do this, I'd like to do that. So that is the gold dust in motivational interviewing because what the process research has taught us, that's tape recordings of of thousands of conversations and looking at outcome, is that the more you use the style and elicit change talk, the more likely the person is to change. The less you do that, the less likely they are to change. Mm -hmm. So you have quite a lot of power, if you like, with Lucy to make things better or worse. But so engage, focus, and then the critical bit, which was what Miller and I have been working on for so many years, evoke. Evoke her own good reasons to change. Okay? And that involves just asking a few simple questions like, Lucy, um, why is this going to help you? How How is this going to help you? Tell me why this is important for you. She will, with luck, pour her heart out to you about the things that she's not happy with and the things that she'd like to change, okay? And you respond to that with listening, okay? Now, let's say you're, this doesn't have to take long. This is not a psychotherapy appointment. This can be done <laughs> in your setting. In two or three minutes, I've I've done it myself and seen it being done. Mm-hmm. There comes a point where you might want to say to Lucy, what you're going to do about it. That's the fourth task or process. So engage, focus, evoke, and then plan. Okay. Again, the good guide will not say, this is what you do, come to CrossFit. The good guide would say, look, Lucy, I wonder what you'd like to do about this and whether you're interested in CrossFit or anything else. What makes the most sense to you? Oh, CrossFit, tell me about CrossFit. Okay, fine. Okay, now you're at the point where you can start talking in a practical way with her, offering your expertise and knowledge about CrossFit, not dumping it on her, not trying to persuade her, okay, Mm -hmm. but championing her choice. And the more you champion someone's choice in the planning stage and in talking about action and targets, the more likely they will be to take it on. And, you know, I would say, if you like it, in conclusion about what motivational interviewing is, it's not something that you do to or on someone. It's not a strategy or a technique you use on them. It's something you do with them on their behalf. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't want 
don't want you to misunderstand my advice to you with Lucy. I don't want you to do anything to or on Lucy, okay? (laughs) I want you to be with her, champion her choice, and ask her these thoughtful, open questions, whatever the four tasks you're on, knowing that the wisdom is inside her and your job is to be curious about what's going to make the most sense to her. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I loved what you mentioned earlier about this visual of sitting on your hands, because I think that's what it can feel like a lot of times going through this process and having to catch yourself wanting to fall into one of those traps along the way. Like, even as you mentioned, when Lucy says, oh, I think I really want to focus on fitness and then the diet will come. You know, I could see myself wanting to jump in there and want to start give advice, giving advice or or giving solutions, but being patient through all of the steps of that process and really evoking the answers. Like you said, the wisdom comes from within and then helping them actually plan their make their plan as opposed to you imposing any of your plan. So definitely requires a lot of patience, but I've seen it myself with, you know, I remember the first time I, I did a in residency where I just, I had a patient encounter where I just went in with all my motivational interviewing tools. And that was the, the main purpose of the visit. And I was blown away by what, uh, what, how different it felt when we left that visit versus other visits that I had had. So very powerful. Yeah, you know, I don't know to what extent in CrossFit um, there are harmful conversations. I don't know. I, I, I doubt it because of the positive nature of the activity, and I find this in sport to some extent. But there are abrasive conversations. And, you know, like the classic that you and I know in, in healthcare is somebody comes in with a respiratory issue and they're smoking, okay? And the physician or the, or the practitioner just goes straight in, zoom, 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 you've got to stop smoking. Now, that's likely to cause harm, okay? Um, whether or not the conversation is unpleasant, most smokers will probably just switch off and get out of the consulting room as quickly as possible. But I do think, you know, we, we do well to to remind ourselves that everything you say has an impact one way or another. And something that, that, that I've learned truly is that rather than fill my head with all sorts of clutter about how to do motivational interviewing in my case, if I free my mind of that clutter and tr- focus in a trusting and accepting manner on this person, they actually are my best teacher. Mm -hmm. So if I sort of slow the conversation down a wee bit and create, a, if you like, a cocoon around the person and myself, I find that in that cocoon, um, I've got the breathing space to think, to reflect about what I might ask or say, say it, and but imagine how they might respond before I say it. You think about it, right? That's a very different conversation to the quick fire conversation. You must stop smoking or scolding my kids. You must tidy your room or blah, 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 blah. This is a, a, a wonderful conversation in which I'm actually reflecting about what someone might say before in response to what I might say. 
And then I see what they say. I hear what they say. And that gives me feedback. So they are my teacher. I then get immediate feedback about how it landed with them. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. These are just uh... like little tricks and tips, if you like. (laughs) <laughs> right. And having that that space too to feel like you don't have to rush, that it can be more of a slow, a slow pace. I loved what you said um, when you talked about the curiosity and acceptance and trust and coming in with that spirit. It made me think a lot about also the conversations we have with ourselves and the way that we can sometimes beat ourselves up for our own quote unquote failures to to make behavioral changes. Is this something that we can also use? Um, for ourselves, or does it have to be a two-way conversation? Very interesting. Well, uh, one answer is one can use this on oneself, and uh, my close colleague and friend Alan Zakov wrote a book about this on the use of motivational interviewing with ourselves. So any search on Amazon or whatever uh, for books on motivational interviewing, um, you'll find this book. The name is Zakov. Z-U-C-K-O-F-F, and that's something like finding your way to change. But as I hear you speak, I kind of feel you're you're pointing to a truth here, which is that if I can be gentle and accepting of myself, I'm giving myself room to breathe and to be humble enough and brave enough to face change, more than if I'm tough, rushed, avoiding medic, um, you know, uh, medicating myself with whatever, mm-hmm. drinking too much coffee, all of which we all do. So I, I, I think there's one thing that we haven't discussed that I think is important, whether I'm working on myself or you and you working with Lucy or I'm working with a with a client which is ambivalence. Mm. Um, It's very common that people feel two ways about change. And when Miller and I first got together and wrote the first edition of our book, I suggested, let's not have a theory. Let's put one concept in the middle of motivational interviewing. And then we had fun. What should it be? And I suggested this word ambivalence. And I, tell you why it's a very normal thing to feel two ways about something it's very normal and it it can create a lot of angst and conflict Mm -hmm. okay now if you're feeling that way if lucy's feeling this way about whether to go to crossfit okay this explains why falling into those traps is so dysfunctional because you are giving voice to one side of the conflict that's already in Lucy's mind. She's got all these voices in her mind that say, it's a good idea to go to CrossFit. I should get healthy. I must do this. And then she's got other voices on the other side of the ambivalence conflict, which counter it. Or if you like, it's like a committee room table with voices on either side of the table. And the question is, who makes the decision? Yeah. And which voices are expressed. So I hope you don't think I'm sounding too complicated here, but put it bluntly, if you argue in favor of change for Lucy, which is one side of the ambivalence in her head, 
It's a natural human response to go whoop and tell you why it's not. Because that's the argument that's going on in Lucy's mind already. Do you see what I mean? So you want to free Lucy up to express this ambivalence, but focus particularly on those positive voices that are in favor of change. And that's the change talk. So that if we're starting to talk about my ambivalence about changing my diet, I do well to be aware of those voices, to be gentle with myself, and I think be modest in how I resolve it, not too ambitious. That's another whole subject. So personally, I've adopted this sort of like 80-20 rule for myself rather than an absolute, I've got to be a vegetarian or whatever you want to call me. So 80% of the time, I'm very, I'm physically active and I've got a very good diet, but 20% of the time I'm not enough to give myself. Like last night, I was out with my, out with three of my youngest kids, right, in Bristol, and we had a ball and we had sushi and I did not care. I had three glasses of <laughs> wine and I ate whatever, but we were so happy. And, you know, that's something that is is really important for Lucy as well, you know. What's going to lift Lucy's heart and, and help her to be happy? So, you know, I'm ranting on now about, about quite personal stuff, but I think it illustrates the importance of being modest, gentle on oneself, and certainly you with Lucy. I love that. And we can certainly relate to that at CrossFit. We're big fans of the 80-20 rule and um, just to relate to your story last night, when I worked on the seminar staff, we would always call Saturday night international cheat night because it was when everybody got together, got to go out to dinner and have fun and balancing that fun social time, um, with the healthy behaviors, I think is really important. Yeah, yeah. So we've been, we've been going on for quite a while now. I'd love to get to some audience questions if you are open to it. Oh, totally. Um, just to just to remind everybody, I don't think we'll get into anything too medical here, but um, just as a disclaimer, CrossFit's not offering any medical advice here. We're not providing any medical recommendations, but we'll keep this conversation pretty broad. Um, so we do have a question. I think this is a great question from Matt Miller. How might it be even more helpful for a motivational interviewing practitioner to have a grasp of the trans-theoretical model of change? So maybe you could just touch on the that model of change and how it interacts with or fits with motivational interviewing. Good one. Um, it grew up around the same time as motivational interviewing the stages of change model and put bluntly, people's people go on a journey towards change, which is characterized by increasing readiness to change. And so they gave labels, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, and action, which kind of, fits in with what I'm saying, because um, you don't want to be pushing someone who's like in the pre-contemplation stage. You can see that it could be trouble. So the question is, it's it certainly, that is, it's not a theory. The stages of change is a model, okay? Carla de Clemente is a good friend of mine. I always see him when I head across into Maryland, okay? So we're good friends, but it's a model, not a theory, okay? And it just helps us explain motivation in a really useful way. Um, so I find it helpful when I use motivational interviewing, but it's not necessary for someone to learn motivational interviewing to be aware of the stages of change model. 
Let's let's put it that way. And uh, it's often been confused with motivational interviewing inappropriately. And I'm having a discussion with, with Miller right now about the fourth edition of our textbook. And he says, should we put something in there about motivational interviewing and not, or not? Uh, but sorry, about stages of change. And, you know, how about this? We like contented cousins rather than brothers and sisters. Okay. So... They're like cousins, these two, but they're not wedded together. How's that? I love it. I love it. Um, we've got uh, a question circling back to the beginning of our conversation. Jess Wheeler asks or says she'd love to hear more about the parenting side of your approach, especially with helping guide children at various ages from toddlers to teenagers. I'd be interested great. to hear your experience with your kids. Jessica, I don't know what to say to you. Um, I'm like a non-perfect father, right? <laughs> but who is? No, but listen, seriously. Um, for many, many years with motivational interviewing, there was this idea that we couldn't use it at home because um, our focus on behavior change with our patients right, is not quite the same as it is at home because at home we've got a vested interest in the kid tidying its room. So it's our agenda that's predominating. Whereas in the clinical practice, Julie has got a completely legitimate concern about the behavior of a patient. And it's within that professional context that motivational interviewing was born and, and has thrived. So can you use motivational interviewing at home? If you've got a vested interest in this kid tidying their room, uh, when actually you're going to be violating some of the principles I've talked about. So just for many years, I was restrained about this and felt that there wasn't a place until I had an experience with my daughter, which I'm happy to tell you about. Okay. I realized that I was not going to try and use motivational interviewing to adjust her behavior. Okay, which when she was 15, 16, was like a little bit on the wild side. Okay, looking back, right? She was lying to me, but not to her best friend. And I thought, wow, you know, that that says something. That's a disturbed relationship. I should be able to repair that. But and then something happened at school, which was that she got roundly abused at mm -hmm. school um, for her for being Jewish in this case, right? Mm -hmm. And she was receiving end of all this anti-Semitic toxic stuff, right? Now, the school and I, we could have had, you know, different ways of approaching this. But what I discovered with her was, and it really changed me, was I found motivational interviewing incredibly useful there. And it wasn't about changing her behavior. It was about promoting her growth and her development. Because I said to her, my darling, how would you like to tackle this? And I heard the change talk. And I realized pretty soon that she didn't want to be seen as a victim. What she wanted to do was to stand up for her rights and express those rights and deal with it accordingly, which she did. Okay. And so she grew remarkably from that experience, as I did, because I realized that motivational interviewing at home is best focused on growth, not behavior change. So, Jessica, there's an answer to your question. I think it's dead relevant at home if that is the focus. 
on on growth and well-being, not to change behavior, which is too often tainted by vested interests of the parent. How's that? Is I hope was that clear, hey, Julie? Yes, that was clear. So I, I think that you can certainly use it at home and with a focus on growth rather than necessarily behavior change. And maybe as the example that you gave, asking questions rather than trying to come in with the solution yourself as a parent, asking questions and helping your kids come up with their own, you know, guiding them towards their own path, whatever age or stage they might be in. Yeah, like, you know, um, yesterday morning I had a 10-year-old in my arms right, in bed. And I said to him, if you were to, he's on holiday, right? If you were to dream about the best day you possibly could have today, what would it look like, right? Now, you, <laughs> I mean, this is a funny, lighthearted, right? And, but then what happened was the change talk came tripping off his tongue, right? <laughs> and I was, I was able to pick out the things and say, wow, so you really, what did you want to go and play golf, is it? Why do you want to play golf, Right. Oh, Dad, I just love all the tropical music in the golf arena and all this nonsense, right? But then we did. Last night, we played golf with his <laughs> other siblings, right? So I was using motivational interviewing, like many parents do, quite naturally, right? But I reckon I was a little bit more skillful than most in the way I responded to that change talk. So motivational interviewing is a dream to use for positive growth and change. And I find the same in sport. Okay, working with elite sports coaches, I find that the same wonderful process can unfold even among some very troubled athletes. Okay, in the hands of a skilled coach, an athlete who's really struggling can turn around if you give them the breathing space and create the cocoon, you know, like picture my son, you know, mm -hmm. on my shoulder. In the sporting terms, it's, it's just the two of you standing together even informally, having a chat where they feel safe and explain to you why and how they might perform better that in, in their sport. And I've seen that and it's been a huge privilege. I love that. It's a great visual of the cocoon or standing alongside someone. That um, might segue into our next question from Dawood Carduni who asks, what if the person comes in with a negative mindset and all the questions you're asking evoke almost self-deprecating change talk? How do you guide the conversation in the opposite direction? My first response is to be authentic yourself, okay? And, and to notice the way you're feeling and, and try and respond constructively and authentically to the way you're feeling. So the problem's not just something that's out there that you've got to solve, but that something's happened between you and someone else that's made you feel this way um, and start there and be authentic. So um, my second thought would be not to be clever. Let's not search for a clever solution to this. Like, you know, Rolnick knows the answer to this I mean, really, I don't know. Every conversation is different. But I would get rid of cleverness out of your head that you've got to solve this by being some expert motivational interviewer. You know, be with this person, be authentic. And what the third thing I'd suggest is let go cleverness and ask them. I would share the problem with them and say, we're having this conversation and it sounds like 
you're you you reflect how you see the the truth for them you want to change and get fitter and yet a lot of the language you're using is talking yourself down i don't know if you think that's fair what what do you make of that that can take both of you out of the kind of struggling conversation you're having and you take a step back so i do that quite a lot um, if i'm stuck is is return to the wisdom of the person rather than think i've got to be clever in my use of motivational interview but that that leads you to just the start of a of a more constructive conversation and i appreciate it's more complex than that but i don't want to i don't want to go any further right now with that question i don't know if i've made three points right no i think that was great i think just like you said just reflecting that back being honest with what you're hearing and you're experiencing and reflecting that back to the person just continues more of that, even if, and, and being okay with, you don't have to get to a plan or a solution in that conversation or in a short amount of time, but all of the, all of the change talk is helpful. Wow. That's an interesting one. And it's a point that I haven't made, um, which is not feeling the conversation's got to reach a certain point is of huge benefit to yourself and to others because they often change uh, after they've had the conversation. But but mainly because it releases you of the stress of feeling, I've got to get somewhere. So thank you, Julie. That's a superb point. Which is hard to do, but um, sometimes those seeds that you plant, they, they pay off much later in continuing to have those conversations. Um, Matt Miller had another great question. I think this is a an interesting example in the context of a CrossFit affiliate. Um, he said, considering the dynamics between a coach and a gym member, how might a member use a motivational interviewing technique to help a, pay, a person achieve their goals of linking? So this is an example, linking multiple gymnastics movements when the real issue is that they've not yet addressed their nutritional deficiencies. Should it be before, after class? Can it work mid-workout? So I think just breaking this down a bit is let's say you as the coach see, you know, this this person has um, a goal that they're struggling with and you see that maybe they're focused on the wrong, you th- or you think they're focused on the wrong thing that's going to get them to that goal. How do you guide them um, or how do you help them get to their goal if you feel like maybe they're not taking the right approach from your expert um, viewpoint as their coach. And so you remember I described these four tasks or processes, engaged, focus, evoke, and plan. This sounds like a focusing issue. And it's it's something Julie and I know very well from healthcare practice. Somebody with diabetes or heart disease could change in any of a number of different ways. And we faced with this question, like what should the direction of travel be? So what we've done, actually, we did this work at first with people with diabetes many years ago in the early 90s. We've developed something called agenda mapping which for focusing, which is simply a structured way of having a conversation about what the direction of travel could be. And I would advise you with somebody like that to have good engagement, okay? Don't go anywhere until you've got a reasonable connection with them then see if you can map out with them what the direction of travel might be in which you raise these possibilities, carrying on with CrossFit or adjusting diet or something else that they can think of and ask permission to step back with them 
find out what they think about it. And then you've got an opportunity to say, to be honest with you, there's your CrossFit, but then there's also your nutrition. My feeling is that they're linked and that you might want to work on your nutrition, but this is up to you. Champion their choice. You've got a good relationship and they will feel more competent, which is what self-determination theory guides us. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And to answer the second part of that question, my sense would be these are probably conversations better had after the workout or when you have time to talk and not feel rushed versus talking about all of these things mid-workout. Although I'm sure there's, you know, depending on the situation there that might come up, um, maybe it's a, a workout with some built-in rest or some lifting sets or things like that might be a good place for it too. Yeah. And I can imagine that there's a wonderful intimacy between a coach and somebody in a workout it's a bit mm-hmm. like a physiotherapist with a patient. There's a wonder, mm-hmm. almost like physical intimacy there. And I've seen physiotherapists um, have wonderful, super short conversations. Um, so I think it's, a, in, in a way, a potentially magic environment. But don't, don't rush, which I guess is what Julie's also saying. Don't, don't go, bye, 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 bye. <laughs> But you've got this opportunity to have these little gentle conversations that show fantastic connection and sensitivity on your part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jess Wheeler asked another great one. After a focus is established and change talk has happened, what's the best way to help somebody stay accountable to make that change happen once you've all made a plan? What's the best way to make them accountable? To whom, I wonder? Accountable to whom? To, to themselves. I think to themselves, probably, yeah. I would ask them, definitely. I would. I think it's a great question, but I, I would say, what's gonna? How important is it for you to be accountable to yourself? Um, and what do you think is the best way of helping you be accountable? I've got some ideas because accountability can be important. But what about you? Is it important to you? And what ideas have you got? You're in planning here. Obviously, that's the process you're in. Um, what is it, what would help you to feel accountable? Like this, 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 this client I was talking about earlier. I raised exactly this with her. I said, "Look, you've you've quit drinking. What is going to help you feel accountable for this?" She came up with the idea of I could phone a relative, so it becomes like a public thing, which is you know. Um, So it's a great question, but I would be guided by their wisdom, supported and supplemented by your good ideas, but I'd start with their wisdom. How's that? I love that. Always, always just ask more questions seems to be the theme. (laughs) So this is another fun one. I'm interested to hear your opinion on this. Frizzo van der Mullen asks, what are your thoughts about using motivational interviewing in marriage or similar relationships? (laughs) The question is by whom? (laughs) Okay. Um, So if it's a marriage counselor or something, then that's perfectly legitimate. And there's research on using motivational interviewing. I get a slight ethically itchy feeling if you're talking about me using it with my partner, because I've got such a vested interest I'm so emotionally involved. I don't believe I can even begin with someone who's very close to me to be that detached to use motivational interviewing. So my instinct is to is that no, it this is a 
this is a big challenge to use motivational interviewing with an intimate partner. I think it's, uh, it also, you know, are, it, it, look, the kind of conversations we've been talking about are all embraced with you having a role of some kind, whether it's me as, as, as a dad with a daughter who's in trouble at school, you know, or a CrossFit coach, you know, or even Julie with a friend. She's got a clear sense of her role here. And she's none of in none of these situations is there too much emotional involvement. And we can sit on our hands, so to speak, and be restrained. I wouldn't have thought this is easy with an intimate partner. But there <laughs> you go. But I'm not saying listening is not valuable. I'm saying motivational interviewing. Okay. Listening. Still probably a good idea. <laughs> I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. And it's so hard. I find it so hard, really. Oh, really. That's good to know that even you find it so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, that's great. So Reed Gunderson asked, how do age, skill level, and gender and cultural differences affect these techniques, if at all? Um. Are we talking about the recipient or the practitioner, I wonder? Probably both. Probably both. As far as the practitioner is concerned, I've been truly delighted, okay, because I've been all over the world and I've done a lot of work in, in African countries and reports I hear about peers using it with peers on the street in, in American ghettos, ghettos of American cities, I feel that everybody appreciates being listened to and being respected in the way that we've described. And so the motivational interviewing actually crosses culture and language and age and gender quite well, okay? And certainly better than an alternative instructional approach. As far as the recipient is concerned, that's a little bit more, that's a little bit more subtle because with children, they don't think in quite the same abstract way that an adult does. And so their experience of motivational interviewing needs to be filtered and adapted for them. Let's put it that way. Okay. So I didn't mean to, to sound flippant when I talked about my 11-year-old. I think if, if you've got a troubled 11-year-old, okay, or a troubled 10-year-old, you need to adapt the techniques of motivational interviewing to suit their age, okay? And uh, there are books written on that subject, uh, on motivational interviewing with young people and teens, and those books can be looked into. So I'm sorry if I haven't been clearer there. No, I think that makes perfect sense, that it, it the technique crosses cultures, um, but you may adapt it slightly based on a person's age, depending if you're working on yep. working with children. Right. That's great. We'll take one more question here um, and then we'll wrap up. Um, again, from Jess, would, would love to hear more about being too ambitious when making changes. What's the right amount of change to take on at once? Oh, Jess, no. No. <laughs> I can't stop that one, Jessica. That's no. too long for two minutes. <laughs> well, well, that's we'll a tough one. You know, I don't think who, what makes you think I'm, the source of wisdom on this one, Jessica, I think it just varies hugely. 
right? And and I think to generalize about this is dangerous. And I would say, Jessica, what's the right amount for you is going to be different for me. And it's going to depend on your circumstances and my circumstances at different points in time. So my answer is quite simply, it depends on the individual at that moment in time. I wouldn't like to generalize. How's that? Depends on the person. <laughs> it's all very individual. Wonderful. Well, these have been great questions. Um, thank you all for your participation and for tuning in and listening. Um, I just posted in the chat, Dr. Ronak is offering a 25% discount to the CrossFit Health community on his book, Motivational Interviewing, um, as well as 50% off the online course, Motivational Interviewing and Healthcare, um, provided through PsychWire. So you can see that info there. Um, did you want to talk at all about what to expect with those courses or the ways that people could continue their education in motivational interviewing? Just briefly, the book that I think that there is there is a reduction for is uh, the book on sport, Help it Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. Okay, so it's the sport-specific book. The okay. course in PsychWire in healthcare, I think is – Look, we spent many years developing that course. And so if you can get it at 50%, you'll go on a real deep dive and get a real good feel for motivational interviewing. And you'll see and hear many different practitioners. And you'll see that there's not one way of doing it. The goal is to do it in the way that suits you. And, uh, you know, so I'd highly recommend that course, but it's up to you. Of course, I would say that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again for being here. Did you want to share also your website if people want to learn more about you or the things that you're up to? Yeah. If you just Google my name, you'll get the website. You'll find it. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Uh, thanks for everyone for tuning in. That's all I've got. Uh, join us again for our March webinar. We're going to continue this theme of behavior change. We're going to be talking with Dr. BJ Fogg on behavior change science and tiny habits. That's March 1st. 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific time. So thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 